0: Hello, and welcome to the latest CSF podcast on actual spondyloarthritis. We'll be bringing you new episodes on a monthly basis alongside our RA and PSA podcasts, and we'll also be supplying you with a monthly slide deck to help you keep up to date with the latest research and publications in the field of axial SPA. First of all, allow me to introduce myself. I'm Sophia Ramiro. I'm a consultant rheumatologist and a senior researcher at Leiden University Medical Center and Zouderland Medical Center in the Netherlands. And today I have here with us, we have here with us Professor Hideto Kamera, Professor of <laughs> in, Internal Medicine at Toho University. And we are also joined by Professor Atul Deodar, Professor of Medicine and Medical Director of Rheumatology Clinics in the Division of Arthritis and Rheumatic Diseases at Oregon Health and Science University in Portland, USA, as well as Professor Xenophon Baradiakis, a Professor for Internal Medicine and Rheumatology at Ruhr University in Bochum, and Medical Director of the Rheumatology Center Rheumatzentrum Ruhrgebiet in Herne, Germany. And of course, if you want to find out more about the papers that we discussed today, please head over to the CSF uh, website www. CytokineSignaling.com. Idetto, over to you, please.
1: Yes, yeah, thank you, Sophia. In the first paper we'll discuss today, the authors compare the efficacy and safety of bimekizumab with biologic or targeted synthetic dimers in non-radiographic spondylitis and ankylosing spondylitis. Our second paper then goes to goes on to identify distinct clinical clusters based on patient demographics and baseline clinical indicators from the clinical development program of secukinumab in patients with a variety of rheumatological conditions. Over to you, Atu. Yeah, thank you, Hideto. Our first paper is
2: titled Comparative Efficacy and Safety of Bimikizumab in Axial Spondyloarthritis, a Systematic Literature Review and Network Meta-Analysis for which I was the lead author. The background of this study is that axial spondyloarthritis comprises patients with uh, evident radiographic damage or definitive radiographic damage to the sacroiliac joint or ankylosing spondylitis, also known as radiographic axial SPA, and those without definitive radiographic sacroiliitis or non-radiographic axial SPA. AS and non-radiographic axial SPA share a similar clinical presentation and disease burden Despite available treatments, many patients do not achieve a sufficient treatment response or partial remission and some lose their clinical response to treatment over time. Bimicizumab is a humanized monoclonal immunoglobulin G1 antibody that recently received marketing authorization in the EU and in the UK. Bimicizumab selects for IL-17F in addition to IL-17A, and it inhibits both of these pro-inflammatory cytokines, which are key mediators of inflammation and newborn formation, which can lead to structural damage in axial spondyloarthritis. This network meta-analysis aimed to establish the comparative efficacy, safety, and tolerability of subcutaneous bimekizumab, 160 mg every 4 weeks, versus biologic DMARDs as well as targeted synthetic DMARDs in axial spondyloarthritis. So we conducted a systematic literature review identifying randomized control trials until January, 2023 for inclusion in a Bayesian network meta-analysis, including three biologic and, tra- and targeted synthetic DMARD exposure networks. Patients who are predominantly naive or those who are completely naïve, or those who are experienced. And the outcomes we looked at were SS 20, SS 40, and SS partial remission response rates at 12 to 16 weeks. A safety network meta-analysis investigated discontinuation due to any reason and serious adverse events at 12 to 16 weeks. So here are the results. The network meta-analysis included 36 trials. The predominantly naive population of patient network provided the most comprehensive results. In the predominantly naive non-radiographic axial SPA analysis, bimekizumab had significantly higher ASAS 20 response rates versus secukinumab 150 mg with loading dose or without loading dose. And comparable response rates versus all other active comparators, including Ixakizumab, the other IL-17A inhibitor, in the predominantly naive AS ankylosing spondylitis analysis, bimekizumab had significantly higher SS40 response rates versus secukinumab, 150 milligram without loading dose, and significantly higher AS partial response rem- response rates. Uh, partial remission, I should say, ASAS partial remission response rates versus sekikinumab with load and comparable response rates with other active comparators. Bimicuzumab demonstrated similar safety to other biologic DMARDS and targeted synthetic DMARDS. So in conclusion, across the AS outcomes that we looked at in this study, Bimicuzumab was comparable with most biologic uh, disease-modifying anti-rheumatic drugs or targeted synthetic DMARDs, including ixekizumab, TNF inhibitors, and upadacitinib. Against secukinumab, it achieved higher response rates to some of the AS outcomes in predominantly biologic and uh, targeted synthetic DMARD-naive, non-radiographic EXPA and AS patients at 12 to 16 weeks. In a pooled XPA network, bimikizumab demonstrated comparable safety with other biologic and trans- and uh, targeted synthetic DMARs. So that's our paper. And I would like to open it for discussion.
0: Thank you very much, Atul. I think it's uh, very good uh, to have this uh, first presentation by you. And now to open it indeed uh, for discussion, maybe I can uh, start. And I would like to hear your opinion of what you think do this type of, I would call them methodological exercises with a bit of data, do they replace real head-to-head studies or to what extent are we getting or not getting further than what we already had with placebo controlled uh, trials?
2: Yeah, so um, that's a great point. I mean, I think it gives you some um, indication uh, as long as you understand, um, and, and you kind of hinted it in your, in your question, is that head-to-head studies are the best Unfortunately, head-to-head studies are very expensive. Um, the drug companies are um, understandably worried of doing head-to-head studies because their drug might come. I mean, it may not really show as much um, improvement on the existing competition that they have. So these are the types of things which give us some idea. And this actually, we did go to a um, to 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 a great. Length, I should say, to come to this conclusion that only in certain people, um, mostly biologic demand naive population, uh, and only against one um, IL-17 inhibitor secukinumab, some of the outcome measures were better. And if you think about, if you really did a head-to-head study of secukinumab versus bimekizumab, you are going to require a huge number of patients for a very long period of time. This gives you an indication that it's not going to be that easy. Overall, uh, I, I think it is kind of uh, an exercise which tells us that uh, this drug is as good as, and uh, maybe slightly better than something, but not really dramatically better. Uh, comparative effectiveness is, of course, extraordinarily important. Several of the national organizations and uh, nations want to really reduce healthcare expenditure, so this gives us some indication. And I take your point, what you are hinting at, that. Uh, Head-to-head studies are great, but in the absence of those, this is one of the indirect comparison.
0: Yeah, I think this is a good discussion and I like to hear your your point of view. I have to say that I am a bit worried with this type of uh, exercises because I understand and I agree with the reasons you gave for which they are done. Head-to-head studies cannot be easily performed, but then is this really giving us an answer? Uh, so now, if you were UCB, would you put your money in a head-to-head uh, study with psychokinema? Do you really believe that? Or then it's better to not put, because we don't believe. And if we don't believe, are we really moving forward with this type of exercises, or there are they somewhat artificial? I, I think we have seen in the past, this type of exercises done, supported by different companies on different drugs, and depending on the company supporting, then the results go in one direction or the other. And, and that makes me, suspect about this uh, type of exercise. So I think it's good to have this discussion amongst us, open discussion. I think you understand where I'm coming from.
2: Completely, I mean, mean, just one quick point. point. There's another, since we are doing this discussion and other people uh, who are listening um, or who are attending our podcast, there is this uh, MAIC, matched adjusted indirect comparison. And uh, you know about this, match adjusted indirect comparison is another way of doing this particular comparison also has its own problem, but there you try to at least match the baseline characteristics. But then, of the circular map study, so for example, versus bimekizumab study, because in network meta-analysis there is no way of matching. The baseline characteristics are very different. The problem with matched, adjusted indirect comparison is that the number of patients reduce dramatically because you don't uh, to 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 match them. Uh, but that's another. Uh, way of sort of doing this indirect statistical exercise, trying to find out which drug is better in in absence of uh, head-to-head studies.
0: Thank you. I'm curious what uh, our other colleagues think about uh, these methods and then these conclusions. How do you take them to your daily clinical practice, Xenophon and Ideto?
1: Yeah, for me, it's very difficult to completely matching every findings, and also some characteristics, because we do not know everything about the baseline characteristic or something. So um, we need some more sophisticated or other methods to conclude a very firm conclusion. And also, I wonder how do you think about the um, predominantly naive patient versus experienced patients?
2: yeah, i'll I'll quickly answer that and uh, then let uh, Xenophon speak. So we uh, so when you are doing network meta-analysis, you're trying to compare various studies and every drug is compared to the placebo. And several studies we discovered actually had patients who were biologic naive and twenty percent patient, fifteen percent patients were biologic experienced. and it is sometimes difficult to tease them out. And that's why we then decided, are going to do purely naive there are some studies in xlspa purely naive biologic demand naive population some are purely experienced and some are these and in the other two popular the purely naive and there were less number of studies to do really a network meta-analysis and there were even lesser number of studies which were looking at purely experienced so we could not come to any conclusion in the pure in the experienced population so we did look at that and uh it wasn't enough number of patients to really do a good statistical analysis. So that question remains open.
0: Okay, thank you. Last comments from Xenophon on this uh, paper before we move forward.
3: I don't have any other comment. I think you summarized it all very well. There's pros and cons for everything we're doing. This will never obviously replace a head-to-head trial we may be getting some kind of signal or at least see if what we sense from the raw data may be um, also found in such with analysis. But of course, we all have learned that this is not um, something we would really take into account if we have to prefer one drug over the other. But I, on the other hand, it's interesting to see different opinions. So I, I, I don't see uh, people should stop doing them. They will not anyway but it's not a head-to-head trial. That's the important thing to see. here.
0: Yes, thank you. I think we can move forward to, to the next paper. So over to you, Xenophon.
3: Yeah, thank you. So we can all go over to the second paper that is entitled Patient Clusters Identified by Machine Learning from a Pooled Analysis of the Clinical Development Programme of Secukinumab, in Psoriatic Arthritis, Angliotic Spondylitis, and Psoriatic Arthritis with Axial Manifestations for which I was also the lead author, but this was, of course, a a joint effort. So the study background um, is uh, such that uh, we do not have any universally accepted classification criteria for the definition of axial psorotic arthritis, nor is there any consensus on that yet, we have to say. On the other hand, we know that machine learning techniques can investigate the patterns from large clinical data sets and identify distinct clusters of patients with potential uh, therapeutic or prognostic significance. And um, this, of course, may lead, and that's the ultimate goal, to a better understanding of the disease and um, also bring us uh, forward towards precision medicine if possible.
0: So, the objectives of this
3: post-hoc analysis uh, were to identify distinct clinical clusters based on patient demographics and baseline clinical indicators. From the C-Kinema clinical uh, development program in patients with psoriatic arthritis, uh, ankylosing spondylitis, or radiographic axial SPA, as Atul also mentioned, and PSA with axial symptoms and manifestations, and further supports also the characterization of the axial PSA phenotype within a spectrum of spondyloarthritis. arthritis. What did we do? We pulled baseline demographics and clinical data of CIKINUMA treated patients from. Um, uh, phase um, three studies, 10 overall, um, from the indications of PSA, the future one to five, and maximize. And uh, studies were with angiologic spondylitis, measure one to four. And they were analyzed by machine learning algorithms. The, the longitudinal responses of secukinumab, 300 milligrams versus 150 were investigated across the clusters and um, across across three clinical indicators of tender joints, swollen joints, and endocytes. The underlying assumption that we had uh, was that uh, if two patients belong to the same cluster, then their clinical measurements across different binary variables um, share similar multinomial distribution. It might be a little bit uh, difficult to understand, but you will see how we came up to the results we came up with too, and that is something that then one can go back and understand the, um, the methods behind that. The clustering algorithm was applied repeatedly on different subsamples of the patients to assess clustering robustness and stability. So we really tried to find different phenotypes that patients may belong or not belong to the different uh, diagnosis you may say. So for the results, we had almost 4,000 patients, 3,907. They are grouped into eight distinct clusters based on patient's demographics and baseline clinical characteristics. Patients with psoriatic arthritis and axial manifestations from the maximized trial were overrepresented in different clusters, number six to eight. Patients in cluster six, they had a mean age of 48 years and they were almost 50%, this is 46% male, were overweight with pronounced psoriasis, high articular burden in knees, shoulders, elbows, and wrists. Patients in cluster seven, they were mean age 47 years and 53% were male, were less overweight with lower polyarticular joint count and deadness of the joints of the feet, wrists and hands. And patients in cluster eight were predominantly with AES diagnosis. They had a mean age of 43 years, 64% were male. They had a mean body mass index of 27.3, and um, they had oligoarthritis, and they had a prevalence uh, of spinal pain. Patients with PSA from the future trials were re- overrepresented in the other trial clusters, one to five, and the longitudinal analysis showed improvements in the you know, map 300 milligrams versus 150 milligrams 100, in clusters six to eight, for tendon joint count uh, clusters, and for in cluster seven for swollen joint count. Altogether, what did we learn from this complicated analysis? We learned that PSA clusters um, are there. They may be obtained by a more detailed analysis that can be done by machine learning in many patients from pooled data sets. And they indicate phenotypical heterogeneity of patients of PSA and axial manifestations and overlapping features across the spondyloarthritis spectrum. And this can be seen by different... Uh, ways of um, um, having the clinical appearance. This means either the the bigger root joints or the smaller uh, peripheral joints or the spine. And this is of course also important and I may also open discussion with that. This is important because remember these patients that we put in here, they were coming also from the, both from the PSA and from the AES um, field this means we did have enough opportunity with many patients to analyze both peripheral
1: and axial symptoms thank you zenophon so my comments is when we when the patient receiving a uh, secukinumab 300 mg then no big difference was observed among eight clusters but when using 150 mg some different some difference was observed in the clusters, so how about how can you explain the reason?
3: Well, I believe it's pretty straightforward um and I would like to make a parallel here, which is not very good in terms of the uh, of the efficacy, but still for the concept is maybe important. Remember also the data we have obtained from patients who have been treated with TNF blockers and methotrexate in ankylosing spondylitis. Yeah, we know methotrexate doesn't lead to anything, have have any efficacy, but still those patients who were receiving CSDMs and mainly methotrexate showed somewhat better responses and also longer term, the longer drug survival. This means if you cover more anti-inflammatory activity by any means, this might obviously lead to an overall improvement of symptoms. And I believe this is what is happening here as well. So we give more drug, we get more patients into a, let's say, even the smaller um, issues that the drug may cover. Uh, I still do not believe that a 300 milligram of um, 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 is the one and only way to go. 150 milligram is enough as well, but there might be more patients you capture with a three hundred, and this this gap between those two groups is the one that I would intend indeed then go over and increase the dose
1: for. Thank you, Sophia. Any comments?
0: Yes, I had a a, a comment, a question, or a comment about the clusters and the fact that we see that patients coming from the maximized trial, so patients with PSA with actual involvement cluster mostly in clusters also that in which we find patients with actual spa so are we seeing there an overlap in the phenotype or do you believe more in two different entities where the, is this pointing us towards I that's, like controversial questions as you can see <laughs>
3: well I think that's the uh, that's the question of uh, of that uh, whole analysis and to be honest with you we cannot answer that yet um, I think we learn from these studies, not only the MAXIMIZED trial, but also the other post-hoc analysis that have been done in axial PSA or what we believe mm-hmm. is axial PSA. Um, in MAXIMIZE, you may remember, we didn't have an inclusion criterion of imaging. Mm-hmm. It was purely the uh, physician who said there is inflammatory axial disease in a patient primarily diagnosed with PSA. So I do not deny that there might have been patients who have ankylosing spondylitis plus psoriasis, but for some reason, PSA was arthritis but for some reason PSA was firstly defined and thereafter the um, axial skeletal was looked at so um, but by the way on the other hand there were differences in the clusters you may remember there were more females in the axial PSA purely axial PSA more males in the AES there was more peripheral involvement in the axial PSA this is cluster six and seven as compared to cluster eight so I do believe there is a difference How big that difference is and how well we can define it for future clinical trials in Axial PSA overall, we need to understand this will be obviously seen hopefully next year with the
0: Axis trial. Yes. Um,
2: Yeah, quickly, um, I think uh, um, Xenophon summarized it that there is a difference between these clusters, but it is small difference. And I was kind of thinking when you were presenting cluster six and cluster seven, One is 48 years and one is 43 years or 47 or something kind of very small, small differences. And one is overweight, but one is not so overweight. I mean, thinking in my clinical practice, when I'm seeing a patient and I need to decide which drug should I be choosing. I mean, ultimately, if you take a step back, the reason why the machine learning and these clusters are important is we are hoping that we will be able to find out baseline characteristics, clinical parameters, phenotypes, which are distinct and then we can then say that this particular drug works better in this particular cluster or with patients with this type of baseline characteristics. And here the machine learning is kind of, it is, it is differentiating patients, but the, they're pretty overlapping. They're not right. very, very distinct. And so currently um, I, I, I think this is uh, this is interesting. And this probably will get more and more sophisticated. Uh, I, don't really think that this is ready for my clinical practice that this particular cluster, if I have then I'm going to use acucunumab 150 milligram or 300 milligram or whatever. It's uh, That's the way I look at it. This, these are early steps with machine learning, trying to differentiate, um, find out a small sliver of patients where particular drug will work the best.
3: No, I fully agree. Um, we need to understand that Artificial intelligence right now is only helping for very minor parts of what we're doing. I mean, I was discussing today with our radiologists about um, their future overall with machine learning, and they've simply said, well, we're by far not there yet. You have perfect algorithms to identify, let's say, meniscus tear, But what else is happening in the knee, you don't have. So uh, while you would be better in meniscus tear um, differentiation from other pathologists by machine learning, The machine will never be able to tell you if there is anything else that is wrong in the knee. That's why indeed we're looking into very little pieces of information. I think we will, I mean, these are all pieces that may come together at some point, but so far we're able to understand very little parts of what's happening and what might be a start of it uh, by thinking of why not differentiate differently in the next step of a clinical study. By the way, we should not forget these are post hoc analysis. So we have already a selection bias. Yeah, Um, and that is something we will never get rid of unless we do something prospective.
1: Okay, thank you. Now, Sophia, please close today's session.
0: Yes, I think it's time to closure. Thank you all for joining us for this AXPA podcast, brought to you by the CSF. We really hope you find it useful. If you did, don't forget to subscribe to our channels on YouTube, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from so that you don't miss any future episodes. And if you want to read more about what we have discussed today, head over to the cytokinesignaling.com where you will find the summary slides of both of these papers presented. See you next time.